Welcome to Crime Corner, where we examine all things crime, whether it be on the page, on the screen, on the street, or in the courtroom. I'm Matt Coyle, author of the Rick Cahill Crime Series. And what I usually say here is I'll be your host for as long as it takes, but I'm just going to be your host for a few more seconds because tonight I'm handing over to a guest host who can interview me or who will interview me about my latest book, Last Redemption. So the tables are turned. And that guest host is Juliet Grossman a deputy public defender for the city of Temecula and a rabid mystery fan. Like many of us, she cut her teeth on Agatha Christie as a kid, and she is now a proud member of Mystery Writers of America. Welcome, Juliet Grossman. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a thrill to be on the show, Matt, and (laughs) I am a fan, and I am a mystery fan. I will say I'm glad I fit into the Crime Corner universe because I'm courtroom. (laughs) That's <laughs> sure, that's right. You you have to perhaps be a guest instead of a guest host sometime. I would love to be a guest, and yes, I am courtroom. I'm definitely a mystery and crime fan, both uh, fictitious crime and true crime, all things crime. So it's just an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm ready to grill you. Are you you prepared to be grilled about last redemption? Yes, counselor. <laughs> All right, then. Um, last Redemption. Wow. So this is Rick Cahill number eight. How does that feel? Uh, it feels like it's been a long time in some ways. I started writing Rick 20 years ago. Um, took me 10 years to get published. And yet, in some ways, it doesn't feel that long at all. Um, so... Uh, it was a, it was a struggle like all the books are that I write, but, um, I'm happy it came out the way it did. Tell me, tell me first off about the title, Last Redemption. So what is the meaning of that title? Is this Rick's Last Redemption and how so? Well, if I tell too much, I will give it away, but, uh, (laughs) titles are, uh, titles are always tough. My first book yesterday's echo my publisher liked she's they liked it they liked that title so did i but they liked the idea of a two-word title too so now um the last thing i generally do before i turn a book in is come up with a title sometimes they come it comes throughout uh through the writing or during the writing rather but generally it's after the writing and that was it for last redemption generally again generally it comes organically through – it'll be a, a, a uh, line or a thought in the book, on the, in the text. Maybe not necessarily those, the two words um, right together will be found, but the, but the general sense of it will be found. And in this one, um, I was having a struggle with the title, and I actually put Last Redemption in after – after I finished the book, I mean, I, I it, it works for the story, but I inserted that a sentence with last redemption in it to have the tie-in, and it works. It, it was in the right place. It's not like it's a, this. Um, it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb by any means. It works. It's sort of the theme of the book. But um, whether it's Rick's last redemption or not, I'm I'm not going to say. Well, I think it's a fantastic theme, and it it really kind of continues Rick's journey that he's had for, um, you know, really 
as each book progresses. Um, so maybe this would be a good time, right, as we're starting for you to just give a quick recap. I know you said you don't want to give spoilers, and I don't blame you. Everybody needs um, to have the excitement of reading the book unfold as they actually read it. But just give a quick recap of what the book is about. Sure. Uh, it's Rick is in a – when the book opens, he's in probably one of the better places he's been in his life in some ways. He's in a committed relationship with Leah Landingham, who he met a couple books ago and lost tomorrow's. They are a couple. They're in love. They live together when Leah's down in San Diego. She also has a business in Santa Barbara. So they live together most, almost half the year, probably a little over half the year. And they've just found out that she's pregnant. Rick's about 42. Leah's a year younger than him. As, as readers who followed along from the beginning know, Rick's wife was murdered uh, before the beginning of the first book, Yesterday's Echo. And he was charged for the murder, uh, released, but never exonerated, never tried, but never exonerated. And for thought many years to be a guy who got away with murder. But he, since then, he thought he'd never be a father. He, he was in a pretty one serious relationship, but that didn't work out before Leah. And on the other hand, Leah is, she's 41, and she'd been married before, and she and her husband tried to get pregnant, but had she had two miscarriages. So she thought that she was never going to be a mother either. So they've had this great news, and this is all on the first page, so we're not really spoiling anything. They have this great news, she's pregnant, and then Rick finds out about a week later after they found this out that he has been diagnosed with CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, the, the pro football disease, which uh, is a brain disease, which generally leads to uh, um, in, incognition, early de- or dementia, and early death. So he doesn't want to tell her that. He's keeping it a secret because they have this new joy in their, li- in their lives, and he doesn't want to tell her, but there's no, really no good time to tell her, so he's going to try to work that out. But the main thing is that he is, because he's in this committed relationship and further that he's going to be a father, he has scaled back his private investigative business to where he's just doing background checks for successful companies in Southern California. Now, the good thing is, is the money is pretty good. He's probably made more money than he did before, but it's not really what he's happy doing. He likes to be out in the field. He likes... Um, trying to help people that really need help in, in ways the police can help them and they have no place else to go. And he, um, I'm not going to say he likes confronting evil, but he feels responsible if evil shows itself in the cases he's working to um, combat it head on. And now he's scaled back. He's living a much quieter life and it doesn't really suit him, but he realizes this is what he has to do to be a good partner and and to be able to be a good parent for as long as this potential disease will allow him and he uh what happens is his former or sometime partner Moira McFarlane asked him to help uh, or ask him to surveil her son who is about 24 and just his girlfriend just broke up with him and actually got a temporary restraining order on him and, and Moira is afraid that the son, Luke, has broken the restraining order and may be stalking the, the girlfriend. And so she's hired Rick just for a couple nights to go to surveil him to see what's going on, to intercede if he needs to. And that's where things kick off. 
Wow. So, so as usual, you're really dropping Rick right in the middle of things. And he does, you know, really seem like a guy who has to be propelled by something he believed in. I mean, that, that Hmm. seems like such a integral trait to him is, is needing something that he believes in and to feel like he's doing something important. So you're now writing Rick balancing opening himself up to becoming the family man in love. And, um, you know, it's definitely not a romance novel. This is hard-boiled crime fiction. So you're adding this whole other dimension to Rick. Yeah, it's uh, the the one one of the things I wanted to do when I first started writing uh, Rick all those years ago, when I didn't know anything about writing, just knew about reading, was I wanted everything to matter. Every bad decision, every physical trauma had to have repercussions. It couldn't just, wasn't like you're watching a episodic television series and the guy, you know, gets uh, shot in the shoulder one scene and then two scenes later, he's fine. Um, everything carries over for Rick. And, but on the flip side too, is that, well, if he actually, why can't he actually fall in love again? Why can't he, after his wife, it's been gone for all these years, his uh, late wife. He meets somebody that I didn't expect him to meet. Actually, I didn't expect anything to happen when I introduced this character two books ago. But they had there was chemistry, so yeah, like he has the potential to live a somewhat normal life. So I had that relationship go. But then on the other the other thing with the disease is that it's you know it's called the pro football disease for a reason. It ha- it it uh, strikes people who've had a lot of head trauma. And Rick Box Golden Glove as a kid he played Pop Warner High School and a couple of years of college football. And he's had concussions as a private investigator. He was a cop for that. So it only makes sense that he would at least potentially be diagnosed with this disease. And um, so that, that I adhere to that rule of everything matters, everything has repercussions. And on the good side, uh, the good things matter. And he can, he can move forward with his life like a normal human being, but, but there's always the, the bad things that um, carry over as well. Well, and it, it's really, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that I would think that you as creator of these situations that Rick is in, when everything matters, it adds up for him. And so the stakes would get higher and higher with each, each book. And here we are, book number eight. Um, so it, it's, let's just say, and, and I'm lucky and fortunate more than uh, the listeners probably who may not have read the book yet, but I've, I've read it. And so I can say it definitely, um, you, you put him in the middle of this scenario and he really has to figure out where he's going. So um, it's, it, it's very interesting that you choose to do that. And I personally, as a reader, love that you do that. I feel like it treats the readers with a lot of respect that you're, you're, um, setting Rick in a realistic universe where, um, you know, gravity exists, so to speak. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, I'll just intercede here. That's a good, that's a good observation. And I certainly am writing an, an unrealistic character in that he's been, I don't know how many times he's been shot two or three times. He's been stabbed. He's almost been disemboweled. He's had concussions. He's killed people. This doesn't happen to real life private investigators, maybe one in a million. I don't know. But with that, with that suspension of disbelief that the readers have to have coming in, yes, I do try to make it as realistic as possible. And thus, CTE and pregnant girlfriend. 
Well, Rick is also, I mean, in addition to um, having the baby on the way and opening himself up to relationships, he's also opening up to friendship. And this brings us to Moira, um, whom I know a lot of your readers love Moira. She's a fan favorite. So tell us a little bit about Moira and how Moira fits into this book. Well, Moira has a huge part in this book, but Moira um, basically was introduced in book two, Night Tremors, as initially as an afterthought. Not, I mean, maybe not an afterthought. I, I needed a private investigator to bump heads with Rick for one scene, and I, I put her on the page. She started talking. Rick started listening, and I thought, well, I got something here. She's interesting. Um, she's not going to be just a forgettable character in for a particular scene in this book, but I put her in some other scenes. It made sense. Uh, the, the story changed a little bit from my initial thought, but it, but it worked. It made sense. And so then I had an interesting character instead of a forgettable one for book two, Night Tremors, but there was a cameo and that was going to be it. Uh, you know, she was fun, but she served her purpose. She was gone. And then I realized in book three, uh, Dark Fishers, that what I didn't realize, I mean, I've always known Rick doesn't have a relationship with any um, police departments. He doesn't have a good relationship, I should say. His father before him was thought to be, was kicked off the La Jolla Police Department and thought to be a crooked cop. Rick, of course, by many, thought to be a guy who got away with murder. And he, plus, with the local police forces in San Diego and La Jolla, he'd already, he'd already bumped up against them in the way he does. So you can't you can't get help that to run a license plate or anything like that with maybe Moira, not maybe, but Moira has connections with police departments. So they developed this sort of friendship early in, in this the earlier book. So she helps him. Like if he, he needs a plate run, she'll do it for him. She'll get it through her connections. And so I had her in that book for two scenes. But then what, what I realized in that book is that she's not just a peripheral character. She's a part of Rick's life and that she will – you know, she will carry on into other books. The next book, uh, Blood Truth, she was a huge part of it. And once again, I only thought I needed her for one scene. She was throughout the book there in many, many scenes and important the um, kind of the conscience of the book. And the good thing about her is that, um, but the, the one rule, she kind of broke the rule. I had two rules. I had the um, everything matters rule, but I also had the first rule I had was Rick's going to be a lone wolf. No sidekick, no comedic sidekicks, no Superman sidekicks that can get him out of physical danger um, and not in, in, almost be impervious to, to pain like some of these sidekicks are. Um, but the best thing that ever happened, best thing I ever did was breaking that, that rule because I think it, it, it um, gave extra dimension to Rick. It, it, he's kind of a sullen guy. He's a, as a lone wolf, I think he'd just be too – too into his head, too sullen. I like it dark, but I think he would have been too dark, and I don't. I don't think readers would have stuck with him for more than a couple books. And you're right; it showed that there's there's a reason to if if Moira cares about him, a very solid person. If she cares about him, if she loves him in a familiar way, which she does, well, then the reader can see the goodness in him too. Well, she's she's fantastic, and she's you know her her scenes, the Rick and Moira scenes, are so great, and they definitely um, have that sibling quality to them of you know the 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 kid sister that is kind of driving the the brother crazy, and I, I love that. So, was there 
do you get dialogue inspiration from those scenes? Are those scenes fun to write, easy to write? Um, what's your inspiration for the Moira Rick scenes? They are they are fun to write because I don't really have to think that much. And uh, maybe it's I have three sisters. Uh, maybe that's got something to do with it, that the antistic, antagonistic dialogue, um, but with love, uh, comes naturally. But I, I just think the relationship over the years that they've had has kind of ingrained itself into my DNA. So I do know with if Rick's in a certain situation, how Moira's going to react and vice versa. The interesting thing about this book, I hope, is that um, what I didn't say is that Moira's uh, son ends up going missing. And so Rick and she have to team up. And Moira, who's always been t- had, her, had her shit together, if you'll pardon the expression, uh, and been the, uh, the more even keel of the two of them, with Rick being the wild child, and she often has to reel him back in or try to reel him back in. She's, um, this, is son, this is her only son. She's a widow. This is her only family. And, you know, that's important. Rick knows the importance of it. He sees, the, he sees you know, he's feeling the importance of what family can be because he really hasn't had a family since he was a kid, been in a family, hasn't really felt a part of the family since then. And she's not the normal Moira. In some ways she is, but you know, she's loyal to Rick, but she's also much more emotional than usual and not in control of everything. And, and even she's always, you know, been upbeat, not upbeat in a, um, like a jovial way, but just a positive person, you know, thinking ahead, straightforward things to do. And in this one, she's a little, she's lost. And Rick tries to fill that void and, and uh, you know, he's not great at that. So that, that does cause some problems, but it's a different Moira. It was, it was fun to ride. I, I, I put her on the edge. Um, it was uh, something that I gave great concern, great thought about. I was concerned about because it was so. Di- uh, by the way, Angus just came in to say hello. Hello, Angus. Um, <laughs> Hi, Angus. <laughs> uh, so I was concerned about is she too um, emotional? Is she is she bordering on unlikable? And um, I got some good feedback from my agent and made maybe some early changes, but. Um, it was probably a harder Moira to write than the other books because of this, but the still the interplay between them. And even though this is, it's a, it's a lot angrier than normal in this book, real anger, I would say in some situations, but that, that part um, mostly came easy. Like it always does, but just her general tenor was something different for me. Well, I, I think your use of humor and dark humor is fabulous. It's not ever a um, buffoonish humor. It's just it's it's dark and wry, and Moira is is often um, involved with that humor. Yeah. And just it's the the fact that he needs her because he literally sometimes can't drive through a city after dark because he might get stopped because the police really don't like him. It's like right. it's a dark humor. Um, and I, I think you've made some really smart choices with not going buffoonish, but really going dark because it, it can add some, some levity and make them really fun to read. So half to all I saved that. the um, Thank yeah. you. I, I saved the buffoon. I saved the buffoon, buffoonish humor for real life, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Um, well, I, you know, it's um, San Diego. We got to talk about San Diego a little bit, the setting. Um, I know that we, um, you just had your um, 
your publication day event at Warwick, the 125-plus-year-old landmark bookstore in La Jolla. And I know readers have often told you they love the fact that your book is set in San Diego and that you've chosen to include a lot of noticeable landmarks, real-life places that readers can spot. So talk a little bit about that. Why San Diego? Um, why did you choose to go with identifiable locations, and what does that mean to you? Was that a compound question? Just wondering. Um, <laughs> My specialty. <laughs> and you know what? We're out of the courtroom. It's, this is 5 p.m. rules. Um, you cannot object, counselor. So just answer my compound series of questions, please. Uh, yes, ma'am. You may have to remind me as we go. Um, <laughs> sip of water. Sorry. Uh, you know, San Diego has a lot of great mystery writers that not that many of them write about San Diego. Uh, T. Jefferson Parker is up in Fallbrook, which is I think San Diego County. And he, he, he does write about San Diego at times, but he also um, spreads, you know, he goes a little bit wider geographically. And um, there's, there's a lot, Alan Russell, San Diego, a lot of the Lisa Brackman, um, um, Terry, Terry Lynn Feynman, um, Corey Lynn Feynman, sorry, Corey. Uh, but a lot, not, not everyone, not that many write about San Diego. San Diego is the eighth largest city in the country, but it still has that, and to people, some people are surprised by that because it has sort of a colloquial feel to it, a small town feel to it in some ways. And there's, there's always been sort of a small town attitude in, in relation to, say, city government. I mean, we, we have, we're the eighth largest city in the country, and we still only have one runway at our airport. Um, you know, we're supposedly an international airport, but I don't even think we get international flights anymore. We, we used to get SST. Our runway is. Well, and I will say it is terrifying if you've flown in. It's, <laughs> it's pretty, you feel like you're, you can look at people sitting in the third floor of an office building as you land. <laughs> I, used to, I used to go, uh, a buddy of mine, when we were in high school and after, used to sit on the top of his roof uh, and watch the planes land. And you are absolutely right. We could see faces and expressions on faces in the windows. Anyway. <laughs> So it's uh, you know it's it's got the kind of small town feel, but it is a it's a huge it's a huge city. It's a sprawling city as well, kind of like L.A., smaller version of L.A. In, in that it's the county itself is quite large. <clears throat> the, the downtown not huge, but the sit the city itself and the county is sprawling, and um, there are some iconic places. And and I they I I've. I haven't really carried all the iconic spots forward where I think about the first five books. I think there was, I think I had the cross in La Jolla um, on Soledad Mountain, the, the war memorial in every book, because it was a place where Rick would go to where he used to go with his father before both their lives turned to shit. When his father was a good father and he was, Rick was a kid and admired his father more than anybody in his life. They'd go up, his father had been in the military, they'd go up and look at the, the uh, memorial and look at the view, because it's an incredible view, and it was a special place for Rick. And after, when he became adult, his father was, had passed when he was about 19, and when Rick had things he had to think about, to contemplate, he would go up to the cross, and he, just like he did with his father, but he was doing it alone, it was different now. So the cross was in very many books. I've had um, the Wind and Sea Beach in there, um, Coronado Hotel Dell and the and the bridge, uh, other places, 
because, you know, you want to – one of the best advice um, – I'm not going to answer your questions. I'm just going to ramble here. So you don't need to refresh me <laughs> You're answering either. them. You're so, giving me every, everything I was looking for. When I was a newbie writer, uh, writing the first draft of a very horrible uh, book at the time, which became Yesterday's Echo, which was a pretty good book, <clears throat> but a very early draft, I made the mistake of telling you know my family and people that I was finally writing a book, blah, blah, blah. So my – family wanted to read or maybe they didn't i just voiced it on them i gave them i printed out at kinko's remember kinko's i printed <laughs> out and had bound copies of a first draft which i thought was a book but of course it's only a first draft not very good but at my brother-in-law uh george helmer told me he goes you know he was being nice that he said he liked it but he said <clears throat> i had fictionalized la jolla because i wanted to have la jolla doesn't have its own police department so I, I wanted I didn't want to have that misunderstanding and um, so I fictionalized the town. He said, you know, people like to read about real places and they I think they'd like to read about real La Jolla. And of course, who cares if I fictionalize the uh, police department? You, any uh, novel you open up, it says on the first page, none of this is real, blah blah blah. And so why can't I just use La Jolla and put in a a um, fictionalized police department? So that's what I did. So that if I and it also opened up to real just to real places, just like you said. So, and not just La Jolla, but San Diego. So I do like to touch on, but it always has to make sense. You can't just throw in the iconic spot just to have it, um, like the opening, um, the opening um, uh, sequence uh, overview of a, of a television series where um, you know we're just splashing it, like Simon and Simon. We were seeing the. the uh, Years ago, I know I have a fan, a friend who's a big Simon and Simon fan. Um, but you would see the different parts of San Diego where you know maybe there's a scene there, maybe there's not. So there had to ha- there had to be a reason for all these places to be in. So, um, so when I when I could find a reason to put a place in, I would. And when it didn't really make sense, I wouldn't have it in. But I, I do try to show the real parts of San Diego, and I do try to. Uh, I've been accused of not getting around enough, but. Um, just, you know, whatever makes sense for Rick to go, where to go, that's what I use. If it doesn't, I'm not going to. I'm not going to just put something in because I haven't been there yet. Well, that's definitely meet, meeting some of the meeting some of the folks at the um, Warwick's event. They definitely were chatting about enjoying that. So I'm, I for one, am glad you do it. It's always it's it's fun. It's interesting. I think it definitely. Um, kind of brings it to life in the reader's mind as we're reading. So, um, Thank you. I am curious, a couple times during this conversation, you have referred to your characters as kind of revealing things to you. Like as you're writing them, it's almost like the characters go in a direction on their own and it just kind of is happening. So I need you to describe your writing process to me. And I know I've heard you describe yourself before as a pantser. <laughs> so please elaborate on that um, and how you, I, I'm assuming you are never one to have, you know, a big chart of in chapter seven, this is what is going to happen for this thing. So describe the process. How much of the plot and overall story do you know on day one when you start to write the first page and what is your process? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I do. I, I think the, um, all the, the writers out there and we have a fair amount that listen to the show and God bless them. They all know what a pantser is, but um, you're right. The rest don't. 
a Panzer, uh, uh, there's basically two or a hybrid writer. I, I, I think there's three. One is an outliner where it makes, you know, outlining makes sense. You know, you can, anybody understand what that means. You figure out what you're going to do ahead of time and then you write it. Like chapter one, here's the inciting incident. You, you, I, I think that James Elroy famously writes, I think his outlines are longer than his books, but there's, you know, there's other people just use very quick things to give them the idea. Pantsers basically um, go right by the seat of their pants. Um, it's always in San Diego as, an, as a hat tip to Raymond Chandler, who um, paraphrasing has supposedly famously said he looked at the blank page every day in his typewriter. And so I've always called it a blank pager, but I do you know, defer to Pantser because people, more people know that. We San Diegans know what a, what a, um, <laughs> a blank pager is. So um, I, used to, I, ha- I used to have kind of a skeletal outline when I first started. Um, inciting incidents and ending and maybe some plot points, things, things I needed, I, I know I needed to do. And it's become less and less as I go. Now it's very messy. Um, my, my first drafts are very long, but they're better than they used to be. So um, I don't get that nervous when my first draft is taking me, you know, five months or something um, or longer. Well, I do get nervous. That's more than five months, but um and then I revise down from there. So the first draft for me is kind of like an outline. And when I'm writing, when I'm doing that, I'm completely open to whatever. Uh, I call it dropping anchors where my subconscious will maybe, I'll be writing a scene and then maybe a, a wry remark or something by someone or an observation in Rick's head that doesn't really seem to connect to what I'm writing, but I'll drop it in. I will drop that anchor in the scene. And then I it, it will <clears throat> generally, I would say 90, maybe late of late, 75% of the time, it has meaning. It, what, what it really does to me, it, it will end up showing me um, maybe uh, maybe the next day, maybe a week later, the true meaning will come become apparent to me. The, and then generally, the, uh, I'll leave it in, and it'll lead to something else. It'll lead to a slightly different direction of the plot, and it will give me greater insight to what I think I'm trying to do. And so I'm very open to that. But there are times when it goes nowhere, it doesn't make sense, and you have to pull up anchor. So when I revise after the first, um, after I'm done, or at the end, at the end of a, the first draft, which a lot of writers don't, they get upset when you write the end. I don't know why, but I do it anyway, and I post it on Facebook, and they can live with it. Um, so when I do that, I go back, and I start, I pull up anchors where necessary. But I, I believe in the subconscious. I think it's it's working on your book all the time when when you don't you may not think you are, and so I listen to that and, and it becomes part of the first draft. But you said something interesting beforehand about letting the you know listening to the um, characters or, or more or less letting them write the scenes themselves. I know a lot of writers really don't like that idea, but I know others that do. I never really used. To, I was kind of on the fence about it, but. The more I write these characters, the more I, you know, you're, you're getting into a zone. Clearly, that you're writing the stuff. They're not doing it. But you do just find um, they do tell you what they need to do. Um, I have, for some stupid reason, I've been writing Rick now for 20 years. But as a published author, I've been writing him for eight years. And I've, I just finished my ninth book, and I turned in, come out next October, I think, 2022. Um, but I've, I've learned to trust this, uh, messy process of dropping anchors, pulling them up, all that. 
not really having a, a being a blank pager uh, and, and feeling that even during the nervous times, well, you know, you've done this eight times before you can do it. But of late, the last three books, for some reason, when I'm starting them, I have thought, well, you need to be a little more organized. Now I don't, I don't know why, but I've, I've made the mistake three times. I've, I've tried to really decide what I'm writing about and all this. And it just, it's, it stumps me. It slows me down. Um, so I finally, after a month of doing nothing, of thinking, of wasting time, I put Rick in a scene. And I do, I have an idea that the, 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 uh, sub, the major Rick subplot always comes to me first. And then story comes and the a hazy endings out there. But I put Rick in a, in a, in a scene and I let him do what he does. And that, that's what, that's what gets my brain. The juices flowing is when I, I just put Rick in a scene and, and he's dealing, he's always dealing with something. So that will set the emotional tone for me and then give him a case that um, will make his life difficult. And I just got to learn how to, I mean, learn, I have learned, but for some reason I um, fell away from that normal process for me. You just start writing. Don't think. Start writing. Well, and yeah, you definitely, uh, it sounds like you've nailed being guided by your subconscious and it's working for you. And maybe it's a new method you invented or or honing, which is subconscious writing. It probably exists already. (laughs) Um, So speaking of subconscious writing, I'm going to ask you, who do you read? Or maybe it's watching movies or TV. Are you kind of on brand with your genre, or do you do you branch out from crime? What do you like to read? What do you like to watch? Um, what do you enjoy at when the tables are turned and you're not the writer and you're the person um, who's taking it in? <clears throat> well, I do read the genre. I read the genre – all the time. I love the genre. I've been reading it for 50 years plus, over 50 years. And I know a lot of writers don't like to read the genre they're writing as they're writing a book. For me, it's never been a problem. I don't really think that I'm, I mean, I'm everybody you, you uh, read, you osmosis wise, you, you know, you learn from, but I don't worry about being any, but being in anyone else's voice or stealing anything from anybody. Um, all the rejections I got over those first 10 years of not being published and all the revisions I made on that first book, helped me develop uh, a voice for Rick. And um, that's the blessing of all the rejections, having to get better, all those years revising, having to become a better writer and really finding your voice. It takes a, they talk about voice. It's a nebulous thing, but when you read someone, you can tell whether they have it or not. And it takes time. It takes a lot of time to find the voice. And so I found a voice with Rick. I'm sure I'm stealing from um, uh, Chandler and McDonald. Um, but that's, you know, that's fine. I, I mean, that they're in my blood. They're in my DNA. But I'm not, you know, I'm not cognitively, there's that word, stealing from them. They're, they're, that's, um, that's, they're bubbling up in me like they bubble up in a lot of writers, I'm sure. Um, but I, I love the genre. I, you know, there's, I, I read, um, right now, I, I don't have control over what I'm reading. I'll just say that. But uh, I like to read, I like to read the biggies, Connolly, Grace, Jeff Parker, T. Jefferson Parker. Um, CJ Box, Megan Abbott. Um, there's a lot of good writers out there, and I can't. There's new, exciting writers out there. Um, S. A. Cosby obviously is um, hot, great new writer. 
And I can't wait till I have free time to find some of these new writers that really burst on the scene. Not necessarily new, but new to me. Uh, right now, I don't have a choice. I can't. I can't write. I can't read what I want to. I, but, um, but you know, go ahead. There's this mythical thing called free time that you're talking about. I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, I know you don't know what it is, and I don't either. But actually, um, I know people have a lot less time than I do. But I, I get other inspiration as I watch crime too. I watch true crime. Um, which can be the older I get, the more uh, it, it affects me in terms of real people's lives. It's not just research for books. It's the things that really happen to people. These are real people when you watch these shows, and yet I still watch them. But uh, I get inspiration from music as well. Um, I get inspiration from the storytelling in good country music, not the pop stuff. There's some really good storytelling, and a well-turned phrase to me can really spur um, the juices. I love that. I love that. And um, all right. So book number eight, bound to have the inevitable question. What's next is there, and you you alluded to book nine. So obviously we know there's going to be a book nine. What's next for you personally? What's next for Rick? Well, this, this book's called Last Redemption. That's all I'm going to say. I wrote book nine. I'm not going to say what I wrote it about. My ninth book. Um, we'll leave the readers hanging, but, uh, I just, I just turned in the book. I have to revise and send it in, in the next three weeks, um, which is kind of scary considering the other things I should be doing. Um, I, for me next, personally, I'm going to book carnival in orange tomorrow at two o'clock. I'll be there to see Anne and all of her wonderful regulars. And, uh, let's see the 14th. I will be doing a Zoom. Uh, the great Naomi Naomi Hirahara is going to interview me via remotely Zoom for Bromans. The 15th, I'm doing Murder by the Book with Megan Beaumont, a great writer um, and a friend. We're going to do, do that remotely. And um, I'm doing Mysterious Galaxy on the 26th of, of January, I think. Um, there's a couple other things in between. But I am, you know, out, the book just came out this week, so I'm promoting as I can in these um, different times. Well, and, and it was really amazing being able to be in person at Warwick's. And I know that you um, have some, as you said, some of the few live events, and hopefully as the live events and as the conferences um, come back, that'll be something. I know um, if you can just say a little bit about what the conferences mean to you and do you what do you enjoy about the conferences and um what do you think is coming up for conferences in the coming year it's a good question by the way i I forgot i'm going to be i didn't forget but i didn't mention that i on uh december 11th i'll be in the bay area at book passage in um cordon madera and i can't wait to it's you know anytime i can go somewhere because we didn't go anywhere last year it's really exciting so i can't wait to go up to the bay area again because they've been bay area has been really good to me yeah, the uh, Left Coast Crime and Albuquerque, <laughs> where it was supposed to be last year, we're going to do that. Um, I think it's the first week of April, right around there, the end of the first week of April. And I'm going to BoucherCon at uh, Minneapolis, and I can't remember the uh, what year it's going to be. And I, I I don't know if that's the California Crime Writers. I don't know if it's every two years. I can't remember when the last one was. Was there going to be a California Crime Writers year or not? But anyway, in 22. Um I love the conferences. The conferences for the, a lot of people think that, um, 
you know, being a writer is a very solitary um, thing. It is, but there, you do get feedback from other people. But it, but my social life for years has just been going to conferences and meeting, seeing people that become friends over the years, uh, playing poker and winning some uh, food money, um, and meeting readers. And um, I try to see as many readers as possible because these are these are basically fan conferences, most of them. And the readers are the, you know, they're, they're actually interested in something that, that I write people there. Well, before I was ever published, I, I thought, will there ever be a time when someone can't wait for one of my books to come out? And I, I have a few of those readers. I don't know if they can't wait, but they look forward to when a book comes out. And to me, it's just an astonishing, it's a, it's a, it's, it, it, it's um, a dream come true for me to have people that really care what I do. And I just make stuff up and people want to read it. It's pretty amazing. Um, and they care about the characters so meeting readers face-to-face is great. I, I, any chance I can to interact with them at conferences, I do. Um, so, yeah, I miss them. It's, it's, been a hard, uh, it's been hard for a lot of people the last couple of years for a lot of reasons. But not being able to, have, to see uh, people live at these events has been rough. And I'm really looking forward to it. Cannot wait. Me too. Me too. And you actually um, can break bread with your readers sometimes. You generally give away a – chance to meet and greet with you and have lunch right is that your standard thing that you at conference absolutely absolutely i take uh readers to lunch we do a little drawing put some up on facebook if it's not something that the conference will manage and take readers to lunch and it's always fun i meet new people and uh i love it i love all those events well speaking of facebook um if listeners i can't imagine someone listening who isn't already following you but where can listeners find you on all the places that they're supposed to find you online? My website is Matt Coyle Books. Um, I'm on Facebook. I don't know, Matt Coyle. Just look for a, a yellow lab on a couch. That'll be me. That's Angus. Um, I'm mcoyle044, I think, on, um, on Instagram, where I just kind of like other people's stuff. Occasionally I'll put something up there. And on Twitter, if you put something up that I like, I may retweet it. Um, and I'm, I'm Coil M or something like, or uh, Coil M, I think. But we are down to like two minutes, so I can't thank you enough, Juliet, Juliet Grossman, everybody, for actually having some really good questions. That uh, some of which I've never been asked before. So um, you really did a great job. <laughs> I appreciate it. And we uh, hope the best for all the all your clients out there. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And this was just such an honor to be on your show and ask me back anytime. I would love to do it. I think we're going to do it again. All right. Well, I will perhaps, perhaps I'll talk to you soon. Not sure. We'll see. But thanks a lot, Julia. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Okay. Okay, so uh, this is the last show of the year. Uh, I know I don't do that many calls, I mean, that many shows. And we're going to change that next year. I'm going to say no to a lot of other stuff and say yes to the show. I'm going to uh, be much more um, uh, consistent with it. And so I hope you look forward to that. In the meantime, this is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the authors on the air global radio uh, podcast, radio network rather. And everybody have a great holiday and be safe and have fun. Thank you.